Acts chapter 23. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which we just sang, is one of the cornerstones of the gospel of the New Testament. The resurrection of our Lord. Before I enter the 23rd chapter, which we will cover easily tonight, I want to add a few sentences to what I hinted at from the 21st verse of chapter 22 last Sunday evening. In that verse, where Paul is describing his conversion on the road to Damascus, he has willing listeners all the way to this verse, in which he says in verse 21, And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And I said last Sunday evening that the Apostle Paul is our Apostle. He is the Apostle to the Gentiles. The rest of the Apostles went to the Jews. He went to the Gentiles. He's ours. And he says in Romans chapter 11, 13, I am the Apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. There was revealed to him more knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ than any Apostle. It was kept hid from the foundation of the world, but revealed to Paul. Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. When I say that Paul is our apostle, I mean that of the apostles we want to read Paul. And that's why we have this book primarily, the New Testament, written by Paul. Because most of it was written to congregations of the Gentiles. And so from the book of Romans all the way to the book of Hebrews, we have Paul addressing congregations of Gentiles except for that book of Hebrews, and then ministers that would go and be ministers to Gentiles. I said that we ought to follow Paul rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to explain what I meant by those words. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Be ye followers of me, as I am a follower of Christ. Because Jesus Christ was made under the law. Jesus Christ was a Jew. Jesus Christ kept the ceremonial law of the Jews, and we are not bound by that law. So we follow Paul. That does not mean that Paul is even close to being comparable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word of God made flesh. He is I am that I am. He is the Lord Jehovah. He is our Creator, and He is our Savior, and Paul is none of those things. Do not be confused about the issue. However, as a minister, Jesus Christ said many things that do not apply directly to Gentiles. The Apostle Paul shows us how they do apply to Gentiles, and he teaches us things that Jesus never taught. I want to show you a few examples. Just quickly, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's pick on divorce for just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think it's a good one because Paul explains that he's teaching something that Jesus never taught. I mentioned one in passing. I I was late last Sunday night. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said to all those that were there, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they bid you do, do it. Now, if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ exactly, then like I said last Sunday, we need to get the yellow pages out and find a synagogue and see if there are any Pharisees left for us to be able to follow them because they must sit in Moses' seat. But the point is, Paul said, Moses' seat has been done away with also. 
Because when the heavens and the earth were shaken, all those things went away. And see if we went to Matthew 23 and said, anything in red writing is more important than in black writing? Don't ever do that. It's all the Word of God. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. There is no difference except one was spoken audibly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other is written by His apostles. They're both the Word of God. The book of Leviticus is the Word of God. But I haven't read about, I haven't heard about any of you offering any bullocks in your backyard recently because you know that that applies to the Levitical priesthood and the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. And all of you are wearing clothes that just do not fit under the law of Moses because you've got blends on and blends of material were illegal under Moses' law. There's many examples. Brethren, we have one Savior, and if the Apostle Paul was here, he'd be shouting amen right now. We have one Savior, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comparison. But the the Lord Jesus was a minister of the circumcision. That is a true state. Jesus Christ said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is that enough? He wasn't sent to us. That poor woman that was a Gentile, she got some pretty rough treatment at his hands until he did bless her and give her her prayer request. But he wasn't sent to the house of Israel, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was sent to the house of Israel. The Apostle Paul was sent to us. Look at Galatians chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to, I want to read four verses beginning at verse 10. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now notice in verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. What those words mean is, I am teaching you something that Jesus Christ has already taught. And that is when two believers are in the church together, they are not to separate one from the other. The wife is not to leave her husband, the husband's not to put away his wife. And Paul is saying, Jesus already taught this, I'm just backing it up by writing it again, and this is all by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in 1 Corinthians 7, but right. now, verses 10 and 11. But now look at verses 12 and 13. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Oh, brethren, we've had members in this church who didn't understand that and thought that those words meant that Paul's writings weren't inspired. They don't, yes, brethren, that only the writings of our Lord were inspired. And here Paul is saying that he's writing something that's not inspired, but just good advice. What he's saying here is, I'm now about to teach you something that Jesus never taught. That is mixed marriages. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord, because the Lord never addressed mixed marriages because he was always talking to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. and There was no such thing as a mixed marriage. That's right. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. And there's the rule that the Apostle Paul gives for mixed marriages. If your spouse is an unbeliever, that doesn't give you a right to a divorce. 
You should stay with them and not leave them. And my point is not divorce tonight. My point is, do you see how Paul opens up more for us? If you go read in Luke, you're going to see that Jesus was circumcised. Does that mean that all of us should be circumcised in order to be more Christ-like? The Apostle Paul wouldn't circumcise Titus in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, and he told them, Happy are ye if ye do these things. And some come along and say, Jesus washed feet, we ought to wash feet. But the Apostle Paul never taught any church to wash feet, and the only time he mentions that he's writing to a minister telling him how to qualify a widow indeed. And a widow indeed showed her extraordinary character, separating her from the rest of the congregation by the fact that she washed feet at home. It could not have been a public part of worship, or everyone would be doing it, and it wouldn't be a mark of anything. See, Paul teaches us about foot washing. Jesus kept the Sabbath. Paul met on the first day of the week. And we could go on. They'll be be more available in an outline. I want to go come back to Acts chapter 23. All I meant by that is I want you to realize how important the epistles are for us because we're Gentiles and we want to interpret Jesus Christ's life and his teachings through the Apostle Paul. Or you're going to run into some of the things he said. For instance, Jesus said, here's one, here's a good one. Jesus said, swear not at all. Neither by heaven nor by earth. Anything more than yes or no is sin. What do you do when you go to court? Are you going to be like the Mennonites? Or are you going to be like the Jehovah's Witnesses? We've had members in this assembly who did not know how to handle that. When we're asked to swear in court, so help me God. Is it right to swear? Jesus said, swear not at all. But if you read the writings of Paul, he swore often. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. The Holy Ghost bearing me witness that I have great continual sorrow in my heart for Israel. My kinsman, according to the flesh, Romans chapter 9, he does it often. And so Paul shows us that there is proper swearing. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll find out that proper swearing is swearing for important matters in only one name, the name of God himself, not by the gold of the temple like the Pharisees, which Jesus was condemning. There's another example. There's quite a few of those if you study the Gospels in light of the epistles. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was just correcting a certain error of the Jews. Paul was directly teaching us Gentiles. And so enough on that subject. If you have more questions, feel free to ask me. I'm not upset about it one bit. I want you to understand. I am not putting the Apostle Paul over the Lord Jesus Christ. I am simply obeying 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. Because he was to the Jews and Paul was to us Gentiles and he magnified that office and Jesus Christ himself was the one that called Paul for us. Acts chapter 23. Do you remember he he was in the temple in Acts chapter 21 and the Jews tried to kill him? The chief captain came down and rescued him. On the steps going into the castle in Jerusalem, Paul says, could I address these people? I'm a Jew. 
And the chief captain gave him permission, and so he began addressing them in Acts chapter 22. And he got all the way to the verse that we just read, verse 21. And they began throwing dirt in the air, tearing off their clothes, and wanted to kill Paul again. And so the chief captain brings them in, can't figure out why everyone hates Paul so much. Well, I'll find out. I'll beat him until he tells me. And then they find out that he's a Roman. And he's afraid that he's even bound him. And so this man, because he's afraid that he's got a Roman in bonds, he calls the chief priests together again the very next day so that Paul can have another chance. And so here's Paul with chance number two with the same group of people who've tried to kill him twice. Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council. Now I want you to remember something about Paul. He had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel in the city of Jerusalem, and he knew all about Jewish customs and Jewish men that were still in office. Now he hasn't been here for a long time. Please keep that in mind. He hasn't been here for a long time to know who the players are religiously, in the Sanhedrin, or the council of the Jews. But he's earnestly beholding this council, looking for whoever he can recognize, and earnestly considering that he has another opportunity to testify concerning Jesus Christ in front of these enemies. Earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, still calling them brethren after two attempts on his life. That's grace. That's graciousness. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I have to chase this one a little bit. Please let me. Conscience. Con is a prefix meaning with. Science is knowledge. You have something within you that is with you that has knowledge. You have something within you that can reason with you. Do you ever have thoughts of doing something and something else inside you tells you that you ought not to do that? Is that an amazing thing that you've got? Amen. Do your puppies have it? Your puppies don't have a conscience. No animal has a conscience. This is the candle of the Lord given to men. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. There is a whole outline available on this subject preached many years ago, which I have reviewed carefully recently, and you're welcome to it. I'll send it to anyone that asks. This is a goal to have of what Paul said. Paul said, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Is that a goal, brother? That is a goal. Does that mean he was perfect? No. No. But when he realized he had done something wrong, what did he do about it? He repented and made it right. If he was unconverted as a Jew, he made a sacrifice for it. If it was after his conversion, he went to Christ and had it forgiven. But he had lived in all good conscience. He had never done anything intentionally wrong against his conscience. He did, as an overall rule of his life, obey his conscience. Before he was converted, he thought he ought to do, and this is a conscience right here. This is what he told Agrippa. Listen to these words. I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. 
I thought that God wanted me to persecute Jesus Christ, and so I did. He was always obeying his conscience. He obeyed it so well that Jesus Christ counted him faithful while he was a persecutor of the church. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. We have an apparatus inside us called here the spirit of man, which is the candle of the Lord. It gives us light. It accuses us when we do something wrong. It excuses us when we do something right. I don't. I do not have. I have just a couple more minutes on this subject of conscience. I would love to preach a couple of messages, but I have an outline, and there are tapes. It's a wonderful subject because our we want to exercise our consciences. I'm done with Proverbs chapter 20. I just wanted you to see that the Lord's given us a candle with a candle gives light. In those days, they didn't flip a switch on the wall. You went into a room with a candle, and that candle would put light on everything in that room. And the Lord's given us the spirit inside. It's our conscience that helps us with light as to what we ought to do. But a conscience can be instructed and trained. Oh, brethren, it is such a big subject. It is such a big subject. If you have an ignorant conscience, you are not going to have the apparatus that God gave you to be everything that you can be for the glory of God. Right. There were weak brothers. There's whole chapters of the Bible dedicated to this subject right here of a weak conscience. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10. All three chapters are about brothers that have weak consciences about idols. Paul will just go in there and say, now listen, we all know there's one God... Idols are nothing, and therefore, we ought to be able to just scarf down the meat without worrying about it. However, however, there, there is not that knowledge in every man's conscience. There's the difference. And see, the goal of preaching the gospel is to get everyone's conscience up to the same level, and for all of you to be exercising your consciences at the same level of intensity so that they're learning. A conscience grows with age. All older people, unless they're Unless they're profane people, older people have a better conscience than younger people, all other things being equal. Because experience causes that. When Jesus bent over one time and wrote in the dirt to a bunch of Jews that had come and accused the woman taken in adultery, they got convicted in their consciences and left in what order? Oldest to the youngest. That doesn't mean that all old people have great consciences. Thankfully, Elihu had a conscience that was better than the three enemy friends of Job. I call them enemy friends. Listen, with friends like that, who needs enemies? With those three men attacking Job in the book of Job, Elihu was the only one that would explain what was going on. But brethren, consciences can really grow when we exercise them by reason of use, in the Word of God. Then you've got this candle of the Lord going with you. You know why we're memorizing Scripture? (laughs) Sorry. i got to let out one one more secret comes out of the bag. We're memorizing Scripture for your conscience to have tools on how to accuse and excuse you. It's a wonderful thing. Oh, there's so much. But we can sear our consciences. You can take an iron and sear a conscience so that it's no longer sensitive. I want to tell you how sensitive I am right now. Because I've cut a number of things out of my life that I allowed to be there for a decade, I didn't have them before the decade, 
but I let them come in and they cost me enormously. And that I've gotten rid of them, my sensitivities are very high. And it's not because I'm better than you, if my sensitivities are higher than yours. It's because I've cut out maybe more. And so I'm very sensitive to things. I told you about a restaurant in town that I went into a number of months ago, and just being there gave me the spiritual willies. And it's not a, it's just a restaurant. But it's a very worldly restaurant. And I've been able to divorce myself from a lot of that. Watching television now just for a few minutes, if I go someplace, because mind, I do not have one at home, and see just a little bit, it alarms me. Instead, you know, I, boy, I could have sat there and watched commercials and anything just rather easily. My conscience was bothering me. I was like Lot in the city of Sodom, vexed, but not convicted enough to get rid of it. If you will cut things out of your life, your conscience gets stronger and stronger and stronger and more sensitive until when you get around something, it's a loud voice. And it's saying, get away from that. Get away from that. You don't need that. Don't do that. What you just did is wrong. Confess that. Go apologize for it. I like that loud voice. It's the candle of the Lord. And I want all of you to want that. It will get stronger. Every time you allow sin in your life, your conscience is dulled. And it's not accusing and excusing you as it ought to. And so it leads you into more sin. That's how sin works. And our consciences are hurt. If you're back at Acts, I want you to look at chapter 24. Verse 16, here's what Paul says in the next chapter. 24, 16, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That's our goal, brethren, right there. That's our goal. We want to have a conscience void of offense toward God and men. Now, if you leave your conscience ignorant, is that a blessing? Be careful in your answer. If you leave your conscience ignorant, is that a blessing? Is there ever a place in the Bible where Paul says, keep your conscience ignorant? Yes. When you go to the marketplace, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, and there's meat there, and you've got a little conscience problem about eating meat offered to idols, how do you get over that? You don't ask the butcher... If this meat was offered to idols, you just buy it in a hurry and take it home and grill it. I love that. And see, therefore, your conscience can't get involved because it doesn't know. And Paul says, don't ask for conscience sake. You say, well, I like that logic. The dumber I am, the more I'll be able to obey my conscience. No, because then we don't do the things that please God. Do you know what the godly attitude is? It's Cornelius. He sends for Simon Peter from Joppa. Simon gets there, and he says, We are all here to hear whatsoever God hath commanded thee for us. Amen. Do you know what he was just going, what Peter was about to do? He was about to put the mother load of responsibility on Cornelius. But don't we all want that? Because we want all those things that we ought to be doing to please God. And the conscience will help us get it done. If our conscience is sensitive, if we're reading and we're praying and we're singing and we're listening to it, if you listen to your conscience, it'll get stronger. If you tell it to shut up and override it, 
And you can override it and go ahead and watch the program. Go ahead and go someplace where you don't feel very comfortable. Go ahead and do something so that you won't look too odd. It, it dulls it and it makes it weak. And you will never amount to, to be a man like the Apostle Paul or like David who had very sensitive consciences. David's conscience was so good that when he was sitting in his beautiful house made for a king in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he got uncomfortable in there. Why was he uncomfortable? It was the first house made in this earth with air conditioning. Whatever else you want to put in it. It was a beautiful house. He was king. All of his enemies were defeated. His conscience would not let him rest. It is not fair for me to be in this house and God is still being worshipped in a tent. And the conversation between God and David in 2 Samuel is glorious. God said, I never asked for a house. Why did it come into your mind to build something for me that I've never asked for? Isn't that precious? Amen. I want a conscience like that. Brethren, I want a conscience like that. When you hear me on television or modesty or anything, it's because I'm more sensitive and I want all of you more sensitive. If we don't get more sensitive, this world, is this world a thing to help us with our consciences. This world has no conscience. Do you know how they take care of babies in our society? They'll protect little puppies. You know, if somebody kills a puppy, they go to jail. But you can suck a baby out piece by piece in a vacuum-induced abortion. What's wrong with that picture? There is no conscience. When we give up on God and are not thankful, God darkens our conscience. So much so that in Romans chapter 1, men who would not fear God and be thankful have no conscience about going to bed with another man. And that is perverse and sick. We need to pray for God to use our consciences. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. How does God tell us those things? Have you ever been praying a prayer like that? In the middle of the prayer, all of a sudden something come to your mind? That you've been doing wrong, and so you confess that? Do you ever? Yes. That's the Lord using his candle. I love that. While I'm in prayer, he's able to speak to my conscience. Do you ever lay in bed at night and replay the day's activities and have your conscience excusing you on things that were good, and all of a sudden you run upon something? I shouldn't have done that. I need to go apologize to that person tomorrow, or Lord, forgive me. I want all of us to have consciences like that. And you pray for it. Search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts and reveal it to me. If there's anything in me that I've been doing wrong, that I can get rid of it and repent of it. Sin sears the conscience and will lead you to more sin. That's all, brethren. I want you to love that candle. I want you to keep it and protect it. Don't expose it to too much television, too much of this world the more carnal settings in this city. You you keep looking at pictures of women that are fully clothed, you'll get upset and irritated when you see one that's not clothed. It changes you Mm -hmm. if you'll protect that conscience. You know, they used to talk about such a thing when parents trained children was to teach them a conscience and build a conscience about sin and doing wrong. There isn't such a thing anymore, hardly. We live in an amoral, immoral society that doesn't have much of a conscience. Anything goes. If it feels good and you want to do it, do it. This past week, I read about how the fact that body piercing is on its way out because they've come up with something better now. It's body modification. 
And they're adding blocks of wood and stone and steel and nylon and things to the, to under your skin to twist your body into all sorts of shapes. Just like a certain continent in this world is done for th- thousands of years. It's darkness. They have no conscience. The one that was being interviewed is Lizard Man. His entire face has been altered to look like a lizard. His tongue's been split all the way down the middle. His eyelids have been filled with steel ball bearings to press them out to look like a lizard's eye. And it's, it's, a, it's the rage right now for those people who used to get turned on by piercing. And his testimony was that he is so self-fulfilled now, since I was a child I wanted a tongue like this. Well, let me, let's, do we need to discuss his conscience? I hope you don't end up taking that stupid illustration home. Please forget Lizard Man. Remember the Apostle Paul. And, I, and listen to these words, brethren. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And let's not have little tiny consciences that barely know the Word of God and what's right and what's wrong. Let's have big, beautiful consciences that are very sensitive to everything the Word of God requires and everything that it condemns so that we are sensitive to the things that God is sensitive toward. Amen. And He is sensitive. That is His holiness. Yes. Amen. That's right. If you'll protect your conscience, it will get stronger and stronger. Acts chapter 23. Paul opens up by saying, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I have never taught a lie or gone, gone against what I thought was right. He is trying to defend his personal integrity in teaching what he has taught through the Gentile world. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? I want you to notice a couple of things about Paul's temper. Anger isn't wrong if you don't sin. Be ye angry and sin not, is what the Bible says. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. But here, this is Paul's temper. He doesn't say, I'd like to smite thee, thou whited wall. He says, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. That's very different. That is, the Lord rebuke thee, which is a correct rebuke instead of us railing. God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Paul had his own credentials in the law of Jerusalem. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He thought that he was speaking to one of his peers because he hadn't been there in a long time. And we have this explanation in verse 4. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And here's a conscience and a humility that I hope that we all have. Are you able to reverse temper this quickly? This is a good test right here. Do you know how long it takes to say verse 4? About five seconds. Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And he corrects what he just did 
by calling him a weighted wall. You don't speak evil of the rulers of the people, even when they do something wrong. Those, I want to tell you something, brethren. The angels in heaven, the angels in heaven do not bring railing accusations against our former president. There is no place in a Christian's vocabulary for making fun of even our former president. The angels in heaven, according to the book of Jude in Second Peter chapter 2, do not bring railing accusations against earthly rulers as bad as the one we had. Because of the office. The office. The office is a godly office and a God-created office. Paul corrects himself very quickly. But he realizes something from this little exchange. He got one sentence out and he got hit in the mouth. That isn't good for being able to uh, give your testimony and preach one of his long sermons. If after one sentence he gets hit in the the mouth, he realizes he has an audience that doesn't really want to hear anything. And so Paul shows us his godliness by realizing these people don't want to hear the truth, so I'll protect myself and get out of here. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Now remember, the Sadducees don't believe in in angels, they don't believe that man has a spirit, and they don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believe all three. And Paul said, I'm not, I'm a Pharisee and I'm the son of a Pharisee. My father was one. I have a Pharisee tradition. And he says, this whole controversy is over the resurrection of the dead. Now the Pharisees got excited about that. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, do you notice what they're already doing? We've got a man up there that believes in angels and spirits. So if an angel or a spirit has spoke, do you notice how they're getting their theology in already? Their doctrine? If an angel or a spirit has spoken to him, knowing that the Sadducees can't stand the words because they don't believe in those things. And so there's a huge dissension. Paul very wisely sees that they don't want to hear the truth, and men that don't want to hear the truth don't deserve the truth. You say, but what if you preach the truth long enough to those that don't want to hear it? Maybe they'll want to hear it someday. The best example I can think of is one I heard Brother Newell give some people this this morning after the service, is the rich man in hell. He said to, to Lazarus and Abraham, can't you help me? I've got five brothers and I don't want them to come here. And the, the answer was given to him, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. Why won't they listen to them? They're read every Sabbath day in the synagogues. Oh, but if one went back to them from the dead, and the answer was no, even if one went back from the dead, they still wouldn't hear. And if, once you spend a long enough time talking to people, you'll know that no, they don't care. They wouldn't care who came and said what to them. Paul realizes these people don't want to hear, and so he divides them against one another. 
And the Pharisees jumped to his aid, and the Sadducees, of course, would hate him all the more. Verse 10, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Here's the Lord delivering Paul again. I want you to remember some precious words from chapter 21. The will of the Lord be done. Please remember those words. The will of the Lord be done. Remember, in Caesarea, at Philip's house, they were told by the prophet Agabus that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound and turned over to the Gentiles. And they begged him not to go. But he, he intended to go. And when they couldn't persuade him, they said, and this is the place, brethren, where we leave our lives. Right, right here. The will of the Lord be done. And so here's Paul being rescued time after time. Here's another rescue right here. He's about to be pulled apart. And the chief captain rescues him again because the will of the Lord is being done. Let's come now to verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. And Paul said, Lord, I've been almost pulled apart three days in a row. No, the Lord said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And he's going to get there in a strange way. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There's some thirsty men in Israel. They were... Look at the rabid nature of these Jews. Is that a lot of hatred? I will not eat or drink until I kill that man. Over 40 of them. Now I want to show you how wicked the nation was. Let's keep reading. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. Verse 14. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, and we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. What I want you to notice is that they were able to go and get the assistance of the chief priests of Israel and the elders to help them. Isn't that horrible? Where is the righteousness in this nation? Just to kill the man Paul. I want to tell you, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, a spirit is cast out of a man. And he goes and he wanders around for a while, and that evil spirit comes back and finds his house all empty and swept. And he says, oh, this is a good place for me to stay again. And he goes and gets seven more evil spirits worse than himself, and the the last state of that man is worse than the first. Do you know why Jesus told that story about demon possession? So shall it be to this generation. That generation was the most demon-possessed generation that has ever lived. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, that they do not please God, they are contrary to all men. And the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. Josephus, the, the head of their own military, standing and watching their conduct in the siege of Jerusalem, said that never has the earth seen a group of people so possessed by evil spirits. And here's an example of it. Their rabid hatred 
We will not eat or drink until we kill that man. Shedding blood was nothing for them. They had shed the blood of the Son of God and had said, let his blood be on us and on our children. No blood mattered to them. Jesus said, all the righteous blood shed on this earth, from Abel all the way down to Zechariah, the last prophet slain in the Old Testament, would be required of that generation. That's how wicked they were. The will of the Lord be done. How, are, how is he going to get away from this? I mean, there's 40 plus men that are getting hungry and thirsty and know that they can't drink or eat until they kill Paul. And they've got some great subterfuge going that they're going to invite him down again to give his testimony. How do we get out of this one? The will of the Lord be done, brethren. And when Paul's sister's son, Paul had a nephew in Jerusalem, heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul, Isn't that precious? The will of the Lord be done. Can the Lord take care of you in small details over and over again? Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night. At nine o'clock I want outside the door two hundred soldiers. Those are soldiers trained in all forms of equipment, but primarily the sword, two hundred spearmen and seventy horsemen. 470 men with a 70 horse escort. Is this impressive? This is our little Apostle Paul. Abused and persecuted throughout the world, he's back at home in Jerusalem, and the Romans are giving him safe escort to Caesarea with 470 men. The will of the Lord be done. I think that's a safe place to leave our lives. Even when the future looks hopeless like this, the Spirit of God saying, you're going to be taken into captivity and turned over to the Gentile. Now that's pretty bleak, isn't it? That's like when the Spirit of the Lord said to Hezekiah, set your house in order, you're about to die. Is the best place to leave your hands self in the hands of the Lord? Amen. I keep repeating that because I want you to learn that. Every time something bad comes up, I see little tendencies to forget. We can't forget. We need to remember these things. And put our trust in the Lord. The will of the Lord be done. 470 trained Roman soldiers. 9 o'clock at night. Be outside my door. 70 horse. Now what are those 40 men going to do when they run into 200 spearmen, 200 soldiers, and 70 horsemen? Praise the Lord. For protecting his ministers. And provide them beasts. 
that they may set Paul on. You mean he gets to ride to Caesarea? Yes, he rides. Felix sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Men do pad their own stories, don't they? Men do desire professional advancement, and they alter the facts just a little. Did Claudius Lysias know that Paul was a Roman when he was down on the street being pulled apart by the Jews and about to be killed? No, he didn't know at all because he tried to beat him. But anyway, it's here in the Word of God for us to see the different characters of men. God's using Claudius Lysias, but right now he's showing you the character of a man. Is he a truth-telling man? No. Is he a self-protecting man? Yes. Can God use either kind? Yes. What's it in here for? What's the letter in here for? Showing the character of a man. God can use any man's character. His favorite servant in the Old Testament was Nebuchadnezzar. He calls him my servant 50 times. I mean, of a pagan king, he used Nebuchadnezzar. And here he's using Claudius Lysias, and he tells us enough about him to us for us to know the character of the man. And when I would have, this is verse 28, and when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council. He conveniently leaves out. I tried to find out the reason by scourging him whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge, worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. This is the letter that was taken along with Paul into Caesarea. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was, and when he understood that he was of Sicilia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. This is Acts chapter 23. This is the word of the Lord. This is God delivering the Apostle Paul from the hands of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem, delivering him to Caesarea, where he's going to have opportunity to testify before the Jews, before Felix, before King Agrippa, and then he's going to be able to make an all-expense-paid trip to Rome, compliments of the Roman government, to speak there before Caesar. I hope that you'll remember a couple of things tonight that I brought out at the very beginning of this message. First, Paul is our apostle to the Gentiles, and I hope that you'll understand how to read the epistles of Paul. That's how we serve Christ. Second, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That is our goal. Let us exercise ourselves always to have a conscience void of offense before God and men. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.